Hello, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to another edition of Global Edge Talk. With us today, on August 20th, 2020, very interesting date, right. we have Dr. Nikolaos Dimitriadis. We will all learn how to pronounce that name later on in the session. <laughs> it's a difficult Greek name. <sighs> it's, a, it's a great Greek name. And uh, Dr. Dimitriadis is a MBA, PhD, in the topic of neuroscience and neuroscience as it pertains to marketing and business development, aside from the fact that he went to school in, in uh, Sheffield in the UK. He spent a lot of time in Central Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. He traveled the world. He is a very frequent uh, guest lecturer and speaker and many, many different conferences. So his topics actually are going to be very interesting to marketers, business developers, global entrepreneurs, and Dr. Dimitriadis, welcome to our studio. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you and uh, your audience. It's a, it's a pleasure having you here. And, you know, the, the topic of neuroscience as it pertains to business is a pretty interesting topic, and we would love to explore this further. But before we do that, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your sort of impetus of uh, what you do with travel, what you do with uh, giving lectures and in, in many different countries. Why England? Why travel? Why all of that? Tell us a little bit about your past, your maybe childhood, your young years and how it all came about. So thank you very much for this question. I think there's a lot of to unpack there and I will try to do my best to be as efficient as possible. So um, I had a calling very early in life um, concerning um, uh, trying to understand human nature and decision making. I remember myself even in uh, early high school um, uh, trying to get as many books on psychology and philosophy as I could. Of course, I didn't understand half of the stuff that I was reading, but I couldn't stop reading. That's, that's amazing. I tried always to go beyond the, the surface. You know, there is a fantastic in, in uh, philosophy, which is called phenomena. Phenomena comes from the Greek phenomena, which is I'm seen. So what I see and uh, not always what you see is the reality, is, is the truth. The truth usually is beyond to, uh, of what you see. And searching beyond of what you see is something that uh, was a driving force, as I said, from very early in life. And this led me to, to many adventures uh, and many entrepreneurial adventures since uh, the, the, the overall context of our conversation is entrepreneurship. Um, very early in, in my life, right after high school, when I started my college years, I, I developed my re the, the retail aspect of my family business. Uh, in, in Greece, this was northwest uh, Greece and Thessaloniki, the second biggest city. I worked throughout my my college and study years. Then you, I, you told me a fascinating story. You used to sell furs and fur coats and, uh, yes, and something. True. And, and, and I don't know how politically correct is today. Uh, to say well, that I mean, listen, it was it was in the past, <laughs> so you're not doing this anymore, right? So okay, yeah, it, it's it's so so pre presentism, as it's called in history studies. We don't judge the past based on today. So, yeah, it, it was actually a very international business because, um, I mean, it's very strange when people hear that a, a town in Greece, which is sunny and summer, was actually the, the, the global center of fur coat production, of fur coats. Absolutely. And, you know, and yeah. gr Greeks and Turks actually are very good at manufacturing uh, furs and leather goods. And 
I remember back in the old country, we used to have uh, shoes from Greece and Turkey. Right. right. So uh, absolutely. So t- Turkey is more with leather. Um, Greece and this specific town that I come from is uh, it's a really a global phenomenon. It, it was a, a part of uh, the subject of my PhD as well. You know how entrepreneurial communities build global competence. Um, there is there is a model in economics. Uh, an economist called Marshall, he developed this model of industrial districts, you know, uh, specific geographically bound areas with many SMEs, small and sometimes micro companies that collaborated, compete with, with each other at the same time and to rule, rule the world and then go over internationally. And this is this is also my hometown, is, a, is this, it followed this kind of, of model. And uh, so very early, very early I went into business and um, international business. Um, all um, ex-Soviet countries, uh, Ukraine, um, Russia, of course, uh, Kazakhstan, they were, they were our clients. I used to um, to sell and trade a lot with these countries. Then I went into academia because, as I said, I, I always had this um, this thing driving me to, to discover the truth under the phenomena, you know, under the surface. So I went into academia, which I was always not only purely an academic, I could never be a pure academic. I, I always had to work in the, let's call it, real world of the the business world. So I was always a consultant and advisor. I, I worked with bigger companies, with re, um, um, communication companies, uh, research companies, and then later on, I, I set up my own my own um, boutique um, brand strategy company. This was in Southeast Europe. Uh, after two years, I merged it with a much bigger advertising agency. We, we created uh, a bigger entity, which I I was the managing director for a few years, um, and then. Um, and then I decided to go back to academia <laughs> because at one moment I realized that um, uh, my passion for neuroscience needed more work and needed um, more more investigation. So I went back to academia, into an academic job, but also in academia, I was responsible in the International Faculty of the University of Sheffield. I was responsible for creating this. I don't know if you heard of this. The, the third stream is called in academia, third stream of income for universities because universities traditionally, uh, they were, they were um, government funded, so this is the one uh, stream of income, government. Then they started charging students, so students in the second stream of, of income. And the third stream of income is the business community. So every university now, uh, a university that wants to be respected, of course. Um, this might sound strange for the US because that's probably how things were for many years. But in Europe, this was a relatively newer concept for universities to go out and offer their services directly to businesses, hmm? go out of their castle and and dive into the real world. So I, I was playing this role. I was heading the um, business community partnerships in, in the university. And then in 2017, when I realized that I was I, I, I was actually doing a lot of neuromarketing studies um, here and there with various labs around the world, uh, I decided, um, backed by investment, to uh, create a startup called Trisma Neuro and uh, devote myself into neuromarketing and neuro-HR, things that we'll discuss. Applied neuroscience in business, let's call it like that. It's an umbrella. Term. So let's talk, let's talk, let's yeah, jump sure. into it. Let's talk about that. Neuroscience, applying neuroscience to business and marketing. What is this all about? Tell us, tell us more about neuroscience, first of all, and then how do we, how do marketers and business developers, and most importantly, entrepreneurs, who are obviously concerned about both marketing and sales and business development, how do they apply this to their everyday uh, activities? Well, again, this uh, this passion or drive of mine to search for the truth, if there is an objective truth out there, um, which is both a, a blessing and a curse, I would say, 
uh, led me to become extremely unsatisfied with the models that we were teaching our students. So teaching marketing, strategy, leadership for many years in various universities around the world, I realized that, and of course having the, the ability to apply it as an entrepreneur or as a consultant or a CMO, I was also uh, for some period a CMO in a merger between a Merrill Lynch company and a Southeast Europe investment uh, company as well. I realized that um, these models are too theoretical, too outdated, and based on, um, I would say, dogmatic uh, old views of what makes us human. Because if you really think about this, Alex, business is about uh, people. Hmm? Yes. As Herb Callagher, the leader of South uh, Southwest Airlines used to say, the business of business is people. Always was, always will be. Internally or externally, you know, our customers, our partners, or internally our employees, our, our teams, etc. It's very important to, to understand what is to be a person. What makes you a person? What makes us human? How do we decide? What drives our behavior? What are the hidden forces that are behind of what we do? Our actions, our thoughts, our feelings. What is there? What is the driving force? What is the engine behind all this? And what are the processes? And in the end of the day, how do this from the internal world are externalized into the outside world? And as I said, if, if you look at marketing textbooks, for example, you will see that we are still teaching stuff from psychology of the 40s and 50s and 60s. Behavioral psychology, you know, Pavlov, if you remember Pavlov's dogs, Okay, the very famous experiment. Yeah. Or, or later on with other behavioralists. And, and of course, lately, fully with, with cognitive psychology. Because if you see the history of psychology, there was these behaviorists that they were saying that we don't care what happens in your, in, within your, your scalp. We can only see behavior. So what we only care about is input, output, correlation between these two. What happens inside doesn't matter. You are actually a slave of your environmental stimuli. So if I control the stimulus, and I, I managed to produce a, a behavior which was different between this stimuli and, uh, stimulus and another stimulus. And I established a correlation. It's enough. That's what I care. I don't need, I don't know, I don't need to know why, how, processes, and how I cannot see, no? because I cannot open your scalp and see anything. And then as an answer to this, um, ah, by the way, what does this remind you, this behavioral psychology view of, of uh, humanity? It's big data. Most of uh, predictive analysis. Definitely very data centric, absolutely. And data, exactly. data incentive. Uh, exactly. uh, absolutely. And ex a, a data Intensive. scientists today, they say, we don't care what is in your head. We see what websites, website did you see? Let's say A B testing. Okay? You, saw, you see a website where the buy button is red, somebody else's website, the buy button is, uh, I don't know, green. If more people press the red and the green, then the red works. It's exactly behavioral psychology. Input. Output correlation, and that's it, which is, has a huge problem, which is the why. Because if you miss the why, you might be um, led to wrong um, conclusions. And the next time you think you establish the correlation, you might, because the situation has changed, you might find yourself doing completely the opposite thing, as it has happened and many times. And then as an answer to, to, to behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology came up and said, no, no, this is crazy. You cannot just see behavior. You have to understand all these lived subjective experience we have as human beings. You know, you have different things, uh, thoughts than me. You have different feelings than me. You have opinions. Huh? You have things that you like, you don't like. So all this lived 
personal, subjective, internal experience must matter. And if it matters, we need to explore it. And this is why you have all this explosion of questionnaires and interviews and focus groups. Because if it is not only, if you don't only want to see correlation between an input and an output, then you want to understand what happens in between in my lived personal experience as Nikos. You have to ask me. So all the behavioralists, the, 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 the behavioral psychology people need to observe me. The cognitive psychology people need to ask me. This is why most of the methods of inquiry and understanding the truth that happened from 70s onwards has to do with what is called self-reporting. You ask Nikos if Nikos liked your website. You ask Nikos if Nikos would buy your product. You ask Nikos if Nikos would vote and why. So Nikos and his through mainly um, through mainly voice, but also you know answering questionnaires. But I'm self-reporting. I am the representative of myself. Okay. And then neuroscience is as I, as I want to usually call it is the third wave, which is um, unfortunately cognitive psychology has uh, failed us in more ways than behavioral psychology. If you ask me, would you choose by behavioral or, or cognitive? I would say behavioral because unfortunately cognitive psychology gave too much value to my mind, to my conscious understanding of me. And now what neuroscience found is that actually, of course, the mind plays a role. Of course, what I believe, how I feel plays a role, but maybe not as in, as strong role as we thought. Do you know uh, that your brain takes a decision 11 seconds before you are even aware that you have to take a decision? When I usually say this, people say, what? What do you mean? Or that out of the 10 billion bits, 10 billion bits of information that your brain uh, crunches every second, you know, there's a lot of information from the outside world and from the inside world that the brain crunches 10 billion bits of information per second. Only 5,200 are in your mind. So your mind, your understanding of you, your awareness of who you are, your conscious experience as Alex, as Nikos, represents a tiny bit of the brain. And cognitive psychology, and not only philosophical schools, religion, gave too much importance in these 5,200 bits of information. Um, and more than 95% of your behavior is fully based on your unconscious processes. I will not call them subconscious because subconscious was a term coming from Freudian theory. You know, sub means under, means worse, means we don't call it subconscious anymore. It's all unconscious. It's, it's the unconscious mind. So the unconscious mind is, um, is uh, intelligent. It has evolved to crunch, understand, and to respond in, in, in much faster ways than their slow and, um, and biased thinking can do. So more than 95% of your behavior, actually it goes up to, from 95 to 99.4% of all our behavior is, is purely unconscious driven. Hmm? So when you, when, when you see these things, Automatically, at least this is what happened to me. Automatically, say, wait, something is wrong. We are, we, we, we have created a model of of humanity, of who we are, of how we make decisions. Of course, responsibility, free will, all these are 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 now uh, collateral damage of what we're discussing. Okay, and maybe that's not the case. And this, maybe this is why the models we have do not work, because we arrogantly want to satisfy the mind's need to feel important and in control and maybe it's not it's not maybe important and even might not be in control and usually when i i, I discuss this with people they feel a little bit um, reluctant 
to even process it because it goes against of, of so many things that they teach us uh, from so young mm -hmm. that we're in control. We have to you know, think about everything. But when I, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how the brain works. It's a, you asked me about traveling. I travel, first of all, because I'm invited and because people are fascinated to really understand their brain. Because we are not, you know, since 1980s, we have the technology, fMRI scans, PET scans, and uh, the older technologies like electroencephalogram also improved. And now we have the tech to look inside the brain while it takes decisions. Before we didn't. So of course you have behavioralists saying that I want to see input and output, I don't care. Of course you have cognitive psychologists, oh no, I have to ask Nikos. Because they didn't have the tools or they didn't give attention to the early tools so much to really open up what is called the black box and see inside and see what is happening in the time frames, which is milliseconds in the brain. So I got fascinated from all this. I have to tell you also that um, I had an, a car accident. This was late 90s. And um, I don't have a recollection of the crash. So I was driving. I was not going very fast. I realized that something was coming. You know, I was approaching something very fast. I didn't have the chance to respond. I blacked out completely. I have no recollection of anything. And then few few seconds, minutes, I don't know how, how long, I woke up. Now I started you know thinking and, and asking myself after that, who decided to put me to sleep? Because I didn't. I didn't have a conscious decision. Hey, now it's going something bad is going to happen. Let me, you know, check out. <laughs> or I didn't have any conscious decision. Okay, now it's safe. Let me come back as Nikos. No, somebody else. And this, of course, is a, is a very famous phenomenon, even, even reported by anthropologists back in time, of, of the brain trying to avoid the trauma. Hmm? So when there is an, an impending trauma, a, an event that can really create a panic, and panic means I might not do the right things to save myself. So maybe the brain said, hey, Nikos is not strong enough to take this in. Let me take him out for a little bit. And that's a very, very famous, very famous brain protocol. Okay, so I got completely unconscious and then back to consciousness without me deciding everything. So I, I asked myself, who decided? And then, of course, my brain decided. But then the next question is, okay, so this is the only decision that the brain makes for me in extreme life-threatening situations. Or maybe the brain makes decisions for me during the, my everyday life and um, my mind is, has not evolved to capture and understand this. And, of course, the answer is yes. Your brain makes so many decisions per day, um, you know, in neuromarketing that you said, sometimes you, we show an ad to people, you know, an advertisement or packaging or prices. And we have an electroencephalogram measuring decision-making of the brain. We measure 500 times per second. So these are, um, I posted a few months ago, so the fastest biological process, Alex, is uh, communication between the cells. There's a part of this communication when, when a neuron um, talks to another neuron uh, that it takes one thousandth of a second. And this is the fastest known biological process. Of course, transistors work much faster. And there are other uh, natural physical processes in the universe that are faster. But when we talk about biology, this is the fastest biological process. So the brain you know, the, the brain cannot wait for Nikos to decide. You know, you walk, let's say we were cavemen, <laughs> cave people, and we come out of the cave. If there is um, a snake or something, but you cannot uh, wait for me to say, hey, 
wait, what is this? Hmm. Does it look like a snake? Maybe it's not. A, the snake already bites me and I die. So the brain has to, to collect all the information very fast in milliseconds to understand the environment and apply action. Okay, and it does this for physical dangers. It does this for social dangers. Because don't forget that for the um, more developed human brain, uh, social phenomena are, are as strong as physical phenomena. Pain, for example, you know, social pain sometimes is as strong and uh, decoded as physical pain. So this is everything. I mean, if if I manage to to create the universe of of why I was led to neuroscience, because my my personal experience, experience with a car accident, but also my need to provide better answers, first to myself, but also to my students and to my clients, of how a consumer takes a decision or how a, an employee decides to get into a project or not, give the best or not, or hold back. Because if you think about it, everything is about influence, how I'm influencing you, how you are influencing me. Not influence in a bad way, not manipulative Machiavellian influence. We are in an office together. You know, maybe you are my boss. You come in and you're my manager. Say, hey, Nikos, we have a very important project. This project will make or break our team. That's influence. That's motivation. You are trying to have an impact on me and you are expecting the best of my response. Not verbally, right? If I say, yes, yes, you are right, Alex. We'll do our best. And then we don't do our best. And this is actually what, what there's so much research, Alex. If I, if I start quoting the studies where people say one thing and do the other, not because they want to lie, not because they, they want to, you know, to manipulate anybody, because we are lying to ourselves. Because the mind, what you call conscious state of being, is not in control, is not where the magic happens. You know, um, I, I, when I say this, people then ask me, then why, why do we have consciousness? If, if decision-making is not in the conscious part, in what I can deliberate, being aware of, you know, and, and self-report, then why do, are we, do we have this awareness? Why do we have the... Because that's a, that's, a, that's a big question. That's the biggie. For me, this is the biggest question in philosophy and science today. If consciousness has not evolved for this... Um, um, decision-making and other processes we assigned to consciousness since the beginning of, of you know, human time, then why is it there? Why, why do we have it? And there is a lot of discussion and debate and fights and interesting theories of why, why consciousness, even the most extreme, just for fun I will mention it. Let's call it the rainbow theory. You know, a rainbow in, in nature, um, we, we, when you ask why something exists, actually there are two sub-questions, minimum two sub-questions in that question. One is, how did it become the thing it is? How it becomes to be? So the, the process by which this is created. And the second is, what is the purpose? So if, if you take the, the rainbow, um, we have decoded fully how it becomes a rainbow. What are the natural physical processes that create a rainbow, right? And, and these natural processes, of course, is the ray of light and it is um, the moist in the air. And then the, 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 the moist is, is, is breaking into the, the light waves you know, and all these wonderful things we know about, about the, the, um, the rainbow. But if I ask you why the rainbow is there, in terms of the purpose of the rainbow, there is no purpose. 
the rainbow is there as a physical process. And actually, there is no other physical process which is um, based on the rainbow. So the rainbow is a side effect, is a byproduct. It has no purpose whatsoever. Now, don't tell me the purpose is for humans to see it. That's a different discussion which we can get in late. So maybe it's the same with consciousness. Maybe consciousness, and that's an extreme theory, but even very renowned neuroscientists like um, Christoph Koch from, um, the, um, uh, from Caltech, who is the director of the Allen Brain Institute. He says, that's a theory. I don't believe it's true. There must be a reason why we have consciousness, but I cannot discredit it scientifically. It's still on the table. So our consciousness, maybe it is what, again, in philosophy, they call an epiphenomenon. It's a phenomenon without reason. <laughs> so not only it's a phenomenon, means it's not real, it's, you just see it, but also it doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a need to be there. It's just a byproduct of evolution, which is interesting. But of course, as I said, this is an extreme theory. There are many other theories of why we have consciousness, but we don't have it to take decision. So if you want to study decision-making, if you want to test decision-making, you want to understand decision-making, you have to be... To, to, to introduce yourself to neuroscience. There is no other way now. I mean, maybe in 50 years, you know, science always progresses. But the, the most um, reliable and advanced approach in understanding decision-making today is neuroscience. So any business person, any parent, any educator, any political person, okay, let's go. Sure. Let's include them as well. Although I'm not of sure course, which of course. <laughs> Especially right now with the Especially uh, right now, with exactly. the vote it's, with it's, the voting it's inevitable. Yeah, yes. it's inevitable, Alex, that you have to it, it goes to the it, every so, road leads to the brain. So uh Dr. Nikos, uh tell us a little bit more, you know, if we I mean, first of all, it's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating topic. There's just so much being spent more and more on uh, behavioral marketing and behavioral uh, science. Um, for our audience, tell us a little bit more in practical terms what they can begin with immediately. What can they study now, uh, especially if they're in the consumer-based markets, especially if they're marketing towards consumers or they're doing business for consumers and with consumers, um, what could they begin with in terms of studying this topic, number one? Number two, uh, potentially leveraging it and taking advantage of some of the things you've done, some of the things that the industry has to offer, you know, and so forth. Right. Great, great question, Alex. Thanks. Well, the, it, will, it will sound a little bit counterintuitive and strange based on how we teach marketing the last 40 years. Stop listening to your customers. That's exactly the opposite of any marketeer, <laughs> that any marketeer or marketing professor will tell so you. So take, take a Steve Jobs approach. <laughs> right. Uh, the and customer this, is the idiot, right? Don't no, listen no, to the okay. customer. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, uh, there, is this, uh, there is this dichotomy, which I think is a false dichotomy between um, uh, the thinking person that it's clever and smart and uh, considers everything and it's... Uh, more intelligent, and the stupid brain that it is the intuitive, you know, the impulsive. And now we know that that's not a, a true dichotomy whatsoever, that the brain is extremely intelligent and can take amazing, complex decisions 
in the split of the second, which if, if I ask you to take the same decision by thinking, you do it wrong. And there's a lot of studies on the subject. But so that if, if I tell you, uh, Alex, here's all the data, decide immediately or read it or be distracted. You know, you read the data, say, go play some golf or some table tennis and then give me the decision. From the three groups, the one that had to tell me the decision immediately, the one that had to study more and deliberate and analyze the data, and the, and the group that was distracted, consistently, the group that is distracted brings the best decision. <laughs> so, you know, so many things that we have been taught about so many things about humanity are completely wrong and dangerously wrong. So when I say don't listen to your customer, I don't mean the customer is not important. I'm just trying to switch attention from self-reporting. Yeah, I'm Nikos. I like your product. I will buy it. Yeah, I will do this. So cool. So nice to what Nikos would actually do based on how the brain understands and decides on the current reality and the stimuli. And that's a revolution, uh, Alex, not only in marketing, which I said, you know, I, I've done, we measured now up to 5,500 brains in more than 28 countries now. So we have done neuro studies from, uh, you know, India, Malaysia, and the Gulf up to, you know, uh, whole Western Europe and, um, um, uh, you know, uh, North Europe, South Europe, East, West, everywhere. And what we constantly see is a gap. And that's the moment of truth the gap between if the brain liked something and if the person liked something. Because if you think about it, if I want to sell my service with neuromarketing, I have to prove that it adds value. How do I prove that it adds value? Is to, to do the neuro test, to, to read the automatic brain reaction to the stimuli, to the, the marketing efforts, the marketing messages uh, that my client wants to have, and then to ask the person as well. Say, hey, listen, based on a questionnaire, an interview, anyway, my background is both quantitative and qualitative studies. So I've done a lot of traditional research in my life. I was always even consultant to major research, marketing research companies. So I have to compare these two. So if I show you an ad and your brain says, meh, mm, oh, and very difficult to understand because we don't only read if the brain liked or disliked, we also read if the, if the brain understood or didn't understand, which is something called cognitive load. You know, which points in the ad or in the message require extra crunching or the brain easily creates memory. Okay, or engagement. Did the brain find it important and invest a lot of activity or it's holding back? So if I do all this and then I ask you, hey, Alex, did you like this? How, long, how much did you like this? Did you find it easy to understand? You know that the agreement between what the brain said and what you said approaches around 20%. Most of you will disagree. More what you will say will not be the same as what your brain said. So what do you trust? Do I trust Alex or do I trust Alex's brain? So when I said don't listen to your <laughs> don't listen to your customers, I mean don't listen to Alex. Listen to Alex's brain. Because all the studies... So how do we, uh, in practical terms, how do we listen to so, Alex's brain and bypass Alex, for example? Okay, right? so he, uh, first of all, I would definitely ask, you know, for you to do a neuro marketing test. They are much more easily uh, available now. You know, there, there are much more companies and agencies offering neuromarketing than ever before. You know, since 98, uh, 97, 98, that it started 2000, we had the first agencies. Now, you know, uh, if you go to online sources, to you, you can find a lot of everywhere you live. Um, not, not as many as I would like to see, but almost in every country, in every region, there are neuro marketing agents, so definitely I would ask to approach it. But not only. 
maybe you find it, uh, maybe it's difficult to find it, maybe you find it expensive, although prices have dropped also, you know, as the technology improves, etc. I think it's, it's affordable now, especially in Europe, it's very affordable. But not only, Alex, the, 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 the challenges that the brain pose to business people is not only, okay, do I have an electroencephalogram or not to measure, is what leads me to a decision? And now we go to, into Steve Jobs. Uh, if I ask, if I have a focus group and the people in the focus group say, I would buy this, I, I have a great example. A very famous refreshment brand, I will not say which one because, you know, it's very famous. Um, they, they asked us to test a, a, market, a marketing message for a new brand of theirs, which was negative. Let's say, hey, you customers or, or, you, or you, you know, people, be stupid. Because, and then they turned it into a positive. And the focus group, of course, this was not the message, okay? I cannot say the, the main, the real message. And in focus groups, people say, that's fantastic. Because if I drive and I see a billboard, or if I listen to the radio, or if I see a, a pop-up saying, hey, don't, you idiot, don't be an idiot, this will be so intriguing, so different, and so edgy that will attract my attention. But when we did the neuro study, we found out that the brain absolutely hated this message. You see the difference. If you ask people, when I ask you something, you start engaging processes that are not necessarily present in the marketplace. When you drive around and you see a message on, a, on the side of a bus, or when you go in a supermarket and you see the products, you don't have a researcher next to you with other five people say, hey, what do you believe about this? Tell me, elaborate. You know, Let's talk one hour about this message. So let's become more real. That's, that's actually, this is where everything is. You have to become more real, to be in touch with reality. Um, one of the things, for example, I always recommend about empathy, because now empathy is a big topic and I have a big passion of empathy. We do empathy studies with neuro, etc. I've written extensively on empathy, etc. Empathy is something you cannot achieve, Alex, in the office. Now, many of your listeners that are entrepreneurs, maybe this will sound very uh, natural, but many people in corporations still cannot fully connect with this. You cannot be in an office and make business decisions. That's, that's for me, um, completely out of place. You have to be where your customers are. You have to be where your suppliers are. You have to be where the, the competition is. You have to be out in the real reality. You, your, your brain has not evolved for you to see a pie chart or a bar chart and connect with anybody. No, connection zero. The brain does not engage the empathy networks, and there are more than one. There is more than one type of empathy. When you see numbers, it's actually exactly the opposite. It, it, it inhibits, it suppresses empathy networks. And if you are, do not connect in an empathic way, you are not motivated to do something for your customers. So be real, get out there, collect different types of data from different sources. Do your data analytics about social listening, you know what people say online. Do focus groups and questionnaires. Go out there and observe. Do also neuro. Don't expect one source to bring you the idea. It's your brain. Your, the SPSS, you know, the, the SPSS is a little bit academic. Whatever data analytics, um, Excel, I don't know. Yeah, SPSS is the, uh, is the analytics and statistics tool, right? Right, yes. right. Whatever yeah. analytics tool you expect, you know what is the best analytics tool for you to connect with your customers, your suppliers, or your employees? Your brain. You have to expose it to data. You have to a little bit do some thinking, especially at the beginning. The beginning is good thinking in order to clarify the data and then let your brain decide. But you will let your brain decide not being isolated in your 
in your office, you know, as we say, in your, your ivory tower. You have to be down there all the time. Of course, take also some time out, you know, go out a little bit, uh, uh, reflect, uh, a, a little bit of reflection um, improves up to 25% retention of information, which is fantastic. Okay, so that, that's, that's the two things after. If you, if you can do neuro research, do it's an eye opener it's addictive when you start doing neuro research you will be you you will ask how did i ever decide without this in the past but second be and get real talk to people but most probably expose yourself to people and trust your brain when you have strong intuitions in things that especially you are more an expert your intuition is stronger than your thinking there was a study done for um um high-level investment uh, bankers, and I think uh, st uh, stock market brokers as well, in extremely stressed situations with a lot of information and a lot of volatility. Those that listened to their heart made better investment decisions than those that tried to suppress their intuition and um, um, process information or behave only logically. We need to return back to intuitive thinking. It's there, but also we need to train our intuitive thinking and we need to expose it to the right bits of information. Um, Dr. Nicholas Dimitriadis, thank you so much for being with us. It's a fascinating topic. Thank you, Alex. Um, I would like to suggest that we continue on this topic and our next session should be more on the practical tips and tools that may be available to some of the uh, uh, folks that might be interested more, uh, you know, in exploring more about this. And we'll also talk about neural marketing and uh, we'll also talk about behavioral marketing as well, which is uh, something that's really taking off uh, from the advertising standpoint, from marketing standpoint and so forth. Uh, so thank you so much. And uh, we'd love to invite you back for the part two of this discussion. And uh, yes, and uh, uh, we—it's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you. I learned so much about this, um, even though I've been in marketing for a very long time. I think neural uh, marketing, neuroscience, is an incredible, incredible field of science that is very applicable now to uh, what the businesses are trying to do. I mean, you, you, we, we're beginning to see what Facebook is doing with data scientists and neuroscientists and behavioral scientists. What Actually, uh, if you other allow social... me, Alex, uh, yeah, 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 of course. This is, now the, this is now the trend. The trend has been the last few years for the larger companies to create internal uh, neural labs. Facebook did it. Some um, networks, um, uh, TV networks in, in the U.S. have done it. Banks in Europe uh, have done it. So the, the trend would be uh, to internalize it because there are so many things you can test from the smallest banner you create every day and the smallest piece of information to big strategy and big you know pains and gains you you research on your audience so the trend is exactly what you said big companies to create to internalize with um, hiring neuroscientists and, and creating uh, uh, internal capacity with for new for constant neuro research and that's absolutely fascinating yes absolutely great until next time, thank you so much, and it was thank a pleasure. You. It was a pleasure uh, speaking with you. I hope everybody will enjoy this. Thank you so much. Yes.